Good morning. I trust that after a few weeks you can still find the Gospel of John in your Bibles as we return to the Gospel of John. Returning back to the same text that we left off on December 18th, John chapter 6. I told you at that time that that was part one of what would be a two-part sermon. And so here we're picking up that same text for part two. If it so happens that you were not able to uh, hear or attend the first sermon, you can find it available on our website and be brought up to speed. The two really do go together because in this text, Jesus is bringing together for us the doctrines of God's sovereignty in salvation and of the necessity of man's faith in salvation. And so... This morning we're going to look again at John chapter 6, beginning at verse 37 through to verse 47. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would cause your word to take deep root in our hearts. That as we hear your word, your spirit would remind us of your promises, of your work, of your sovereignty. And at the same time, Lord, we pray that you would spur us on to greater faith, to seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. John 6 
contains some of the deepest theology in the gospel. Perhaps even in the New Testament itself. And, and this is not surprising because Jesus is talking here about salvation and assurance. Jesus has been teaching us, last week we looked at what are often called the doctrines of grace. Sometimes they're called the five points of Calvinism. But I think the best way to describe them is the sovereignty of God in salvation. Last time we were together in this chapter, we saw election that the Father has given a people to the Son. We saw irresistible grace that all will come who have been given. And we saw the perseverance of the saints that Jesus will lose none who have been given. It's clear from what we saw last time, especially verse 37, that God is sovereign in salvation. The problem is that many want to pit God's sovereignty against man's responsibility. But Jesus teaches us that this is not the case. He shows us here the necessity of faith, that we must believe to be saved. And Jesus goes on to show us how we are able to believe, how God's grace makes that possible. So we must believe but salvation is still all of God. When we were last in this text, we took up the first of three points that Jesus makes here. We saw God's will. That God's will for salvation is that he will give to the Son a people. And now, this morning, I'd like us to see the second and third points in this text. That after we've seen God's will, we need to see Man's belief. And that man's belief is only possible because of God's provision. God's will, but then man's belief and God's provision. Let's begin then by looking at man's belief. But in order to do so, we must remember what we have seen, especially in verses 37 to 39. You will recall that the Father has a people that he has given to the Son. God, the Father, is the initiator. The most important gift, you will remember, is the gift of a people to the Son. We often think, when we think of gifts from God, we think the most important gift is the gift of the Son and salvation to us. But Jesus tells us that's not true. The most important gift is the gift of the Father to the Son, giving the Son a people. But there's a second thing that Jesus tells us. And that is, all of those who have been given by the Father will come to Jesus. Note the verb. It's not may. It's not might. It's not could. It's will. All whom the Father has given will come to the Son. And the reason for their coming to the Son is the sovereign choice of God. But let's not forget the nature of their coming. How 
do they come? This is also important, and Jesus is going to describe that for us. It's not enough for us to just know that they will come. Jesus tells us how they will come. Thirdly, I want you to remember that Jesus promises never to cast out any who come to him. That means their coming to Jesus is never in vain. It is never frustrated. Those who come to Jesus know that he will receive them. That's his promise. And that is important and helpful for us. I have reached the stage in my life where I am almost always in full-time dad mode. And what that means is, if I ever have to go somewhere, to a government agency or to a bureaucracy or to a company, or even more importantly, if any of my adult children need to go, one of my standard pieces of advice that they don't always like is you have to call them first. Make sure they're open. Make sure they have what you need. You don't want to make a wasted trip. Make sure you're going to the right office. You're doing the right thing. Because my working assumption is, is that when we go, something is going to be messed up. It's not going to be satisfactory. We need to take extra precautions. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, that's how we often live life. But Jesus tells you to put that out of your mind with respect to salvation. Because when you go to Jesus, you don't need to call ahead to make sure he's ready for you. You don't need to make sure there's a place for you in God's people. When you come to Jesus, he will never cast you out. He will always receive you. You see, it's more than Jesus' promise to us not to cast us out. It's Jesus' promise to the Father. That's what Jesus says in verse 38. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. Jesus has promised not only to you that he won't cast you out, he has promised the Father that he will not refuse or lose any that the Father has given. So salvation depends not just on the sovereign gift of the Father, but on the promise of the Son to the Father. Then, in verse 39, Jesus reminds us that his promise to do the Father's will involves preservation. That is, the Father does not just will that Jesus receive all who come. He wills that Jesus keep them, that he will lose nothing, and that he will keep them until the very end. That is, the last day. Now, at this point, is when Jesus reminds us of our responsibility. Now, notice that Jesus is still speaking in verse 40 of the will of the Father. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Now, this is important. Because it means that Jesus has promised that this will come to pass. It means that the Father has sovereignly designed what will happen. And what is the Father's will here? What does it involve? It's simple. Believing in Jesus. That's why at the highest levels, you cannot put God's sovereignty against man's faith. Jesus won't let you. 
Just as the Father wills to give a people to the Son, so He wills that they look on the Son and believe. And more than that, that everyone who believes has eternal life. You know, some act as if election is somehow a subset of those who believe. That is, that if you believe on Jesus, you then need to also worry if you're elect. That you've believed on Jesus, but how do I know that God will accept me? How can I figure out if I'm elect? I know I've believed, but I know I need to be given by the Father, according to Jesus. How can I know if I'm one of the elect? And so they make election the object of their inquiry. And this leads to doubting. It leads to distress. And and that makes sense to me, because how can you see election? How do you know God's sovereign choice in eternity past? But Jesus tells you not to make election your focus. Focus on faith. Do you believe? Because you see, that's the question before you. You can't look into eternity past. You can't see the choice of the Father as to who is given to the Son. But you don't need to. Either for yourself or for others. You need to look for faith. Believing in Jesus. That's how you can know. That's what God has designed. I think there is perhaps no theologian more associated with the doctrine of election than John Calvin. And I'd like to share with you Calvin's thoughts on this passage. I think they're very instructive as we tend to think of Calvin as pushing a hold, a, a, a hard, cold Calvinism about election and sovereignty with no place for believing. Calvin writes this. They are madmen, therefore, who seek their own salvation or that of others in the whirlpool of predestination, not keeping the way of salvation which is exhibited to them. To every man, therefore, his faith is a sufficient attestation of the eternal predestination of God. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it in an even pithier way. He says, do you want to know if you're elect? Believe on Christ. Then you'll know you're elect. Focus on belief, on faith. Do you see the connection that Jesus is making here in this text? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes has eternal life. And everyone who has eternal life has come to Jesus. And everyone who comes has been given by the Father. So if you want to know if you've been given by the Father and have eternal life, then look on the Son and believe. It follows like night follows day. That's what we are to look at. And none of them, Jesus tells us, are lost. You see, Jesus is telling us about God's sovereignty and salvation Not for theological purposes. Not as a part of a theory. But so that you will know 
that if you believe in Jesus, you are safe forever. That's what he's telling them. He wants you to know that when you believe in him, when you come to him, there is an eternal divine foundation behind that faith. Your faith is not your own. It does not depend on you. And this is crucial for us because our faith goes up and down. It waxes and it wanes. We have periods of time in which we feel stronger in our faith and times in which we are weaker in our faith. Our circumstances and the providence that we experience changes our perspective on faith. We can be constantly afraid of losing our salvation. But Jesus says that your faith does not depend ultimately on you, but on God. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That is, that faith itself is the gift of God. So let me be direct here. If you're here this morning, it is by the sovereign will of God. He is in control. Now, I'm not asking you to try to figure out how that works. I'm calling on you to look and believe. That's what Jesus said. If you look and believe, you will have eternal life. That is the promise of Jesus. A promise not just to you, but to the Father. And if you have looked and believed, then you can rest assured that Jesus will save you. That he has saved you. What good news. Now think about faith itself for a moment. What is faith? What do we do when we believe? Is faith a work? Is it something we have to perform correctly in order to be saved? This is also important for us to understand. What does Jesus mean when he says, look and believe? Now you would think the answer would be simple. But we so often make it more complex than it needs to be. Jesus tells us that we must receive the kingdom of God like a child. He tells us that in Luke 18. Now what does that mean? How does a child receive something? Let me ask you, when you give your child his favorite meal, what does he ask? What does he need to know? When you put your child's favorite meal in front of him, does he say, Mom, at what temperature did you saute this food? And, and what type of oil did you use? And what spices are involved in it? And what is the type of knife that you use to cut up the ingredients? Is that what a child says? No, I think, if I can recall back to when my children were young, the answer would be, oh, wow, my favorite. Can I have seconds? Right? They just receive it. 
When you tell a child that something is going to happen, that you're going to do something, how do they react? When you say, we're going to go on vacation in Florida, do they say, what airline are we going to fly? What's the flight number? Do we have a layover? How many bags will we check? No, what do they say? We're going to Florida. So much so that the Lord helped the family that something comes in the way and they don't get to go to Florida. Because for the next two months, you're going to hear from the child, you said we're going to Florida. We're supposed to be in Florida. That's all they know. They just want to receive it. They simply believe what you say and they rest on it. The matter is settled. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't say that we are to receive the kingdom of God like a teen. He specifically says a child. He's not anticipating our questions. What's the kingdom of God like? Well, I really like it. I know more about the kingdom of God than you do because I've read a book about the kingdom of God. No. We're to receive the kingdom of God like a child. To merely rest on him. The act of believing in Jesus is trusting him. It's trusting that what he says is true. What he says about God. About sin. And about you. It's trusting that when he says, if you come to him, he will never cast you out. That you believe that is true. It's that when he tells you, he will never lose you. You trust him that that is true. You trust him that his promise is real and faithful. Faith is receiving Jesus and his words and resting on them. Our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it so well in a succinct way. In chapter 14... The confession states, the principal acts of saving faith are, now there's a definition, right? The principal acts of saving faith. Well, what are they? Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ. It doesn't get any simpler than that. To accept Christ, to receive Christ, and perhaps most importantly, to rest upon Christ. What Jesus is saying here is that you must believe in him. He understands that not every believer has the same strength of faith all the time. Differing believers have differing strengths of faith. Even the same believer at different points in his life can see his faith be strong or weaker. And again, our confession puts it very well in the same chapter. This faith, that is saving faith, is different in degrees. Weak or strong, may, may be often and many ways assailed and weakened, but it gets the victory. Growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. You should be hearing an echo of Hebrews in the Westminster Divines there. That Jesus is not only the one that we have faith in. He is the author of our faith and he is the finisher or the completer of our faith. So let me tell you this plainly. 
Do not have faith in your faith. Have faith in Jesus. That's who you are to have faith in. Well, the obvious question that then follows is, how can I believe then? Jesus, if I have to believe, how can I believe? That is, why do some people believe and others don't? You may be here this morning and you may have struggled with believing in Jesus all your life. You may have seen others around you say they believe and you wonder, why do they believe and I don't? Or perhaps the circumstances are that you may have seen others who are close to you struggling with faith in Christ. They don't believe. They may have grown up in the same family as you. They may be close friends with you and you wonder, how can I believe and they don't? Well, Jesus makes a profound statement for us in verse 44. But before we get to that statement, let's see the context for the statement. In verse 41, we see that the Jews are grumbling about Jesus. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's clear these people don't believe that Jesus has taught about the Father's will, about salvation, about believing, and that they don't get it. But there's something interesting here. It's very likely that verse 41 marks a change in Jesus' location. Many of your Bibles have a paragraph mark starting verse 41. Many commentators agree. If we go all the way down to verse 59, we see that Jesus is speaking at some point in a synagogue in Capernaum. And I think it makes most sense to see that that's when this conversation begins in the synagogue. And so Jesus is now talking not to a random group of people that are in a crowd. He's talking to religious people. They're at church. These are people who ought to know better. These are people who should, we would expect, believe. But they don't. Do you see the disconnect there? Jesus is speaking to religious people who know God, who read the word of God, and they don't believe. So Jesus is making this point here in the context of people who would be most likely to believe, but don't. It's not as if he's talking to Romans who don't know the Bible at all. Or to people who have no interest in spiritual matters. These are religious people in church. These are the people that make us scratch our heads and say, Jesus is right there. Why don't you believe him? Well, verse 42 gives us a partial answer as to why they don't believe. They think they know all about Jesus. You see, they say, this is a local boy. We know his father and his mother. How can he make these claims that he comes down from heaven? Now, this kind of objection is something that Christians hear all the time. When you are witnessing to someone or you are telling them about Jesus, they think they know all the answers already and they think they know all about you. You see, you're not an adult with several degrees and a decade studying the Bible. You're that teen that couldn't weed the garden properly. Or 
that flunked out of that class in school. Or that guy that couldn't keep a job for several years in a row. They think they know all about you and everything there is to know, and they don't even have to listen. Another thing that is going on here is implicit is the fact that these people don't believe they need saving. They say to themselves, who is this man to tell us that we need him? Doesn't he know who we are? I mean, we're in church. We're good people. Why does he think we need saving? What's so rotten about us? Now, this is also common, isn't it? Because no matter how messed up someone's life is, they don't want to admit they need saving. They want to believe that they are above average. Now, some of you are old enough to remember that story of Lake Wobegon, where everyone is above average. Well, even if you're not old enough to remember that, let me tell you, everyone in Katy believes they're above average. It's one of the definitions of Katy. It's not possible. There must be like a storehouse of people below average that they compare us to. Because there's no way any of us could be below average. I mean, we've got great educational institutions. We've got great homes. We've got great incomes. We've got great businesses. We've got great restaurants. We've even got pretty good roads. We're definitely above average. What could we possibly need? You see, that's the way they look at Jesus. So this is the context. Now, why don't the people most likely to believe, actually believe. Jesus tells us in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now at first glance, this is a very discouraging statement, isn't it? Because we tend to read that statement as, no matter how hard I try to believe, I can't. I have no hope. I'm locked out. But you can't read that verse outside of the context of this passage. Remember the promise of the Father to give a people who will come to the Son. Remember the promise of the Son to never cast out those who will come, but to keep them until the last day. Remember the will of the Father and the Son that everyone who believes in the Son, will have eternal life. Jesus is saying that it is impossible for anyone apart from God to come to Him. But He's also saying that doesn't matter because the Father has overcome that. The Bible is not shy about our sin. We're not just in need of some fixing. It has become commonplace today to refer to the sinner's condition as being broken. As if somehow a few squirts of oil and tightenings of the screws with a screwdriver will make us all right and fix us just fine. But that's not how the Bible describes us. The Bible doesn't describe us as broken. It describes us as dead. The truth is, you are not as bad as you think you are. You're worse. 
But the good news is that you don't need to get yourself together to come to Jesus. The Father will draw you to Jesus. That's how the Father makes sure that the all of verse 37 come. He does the work. And this drawing is more than a wooing or that a persuasion. That's not what the Bible's describing here. You know, when my wife really wants me to come quickly and on time to dinner, she will describe, sometimes in detail, the food that we are having when she knows it's one of my favorites. She knows that sometimes she calls and I'll say, in a minute, working on something. At other times she'll say, we're having spaghetti and sauce. Oh, okay. That's it. That's all it takes. That's not what the Bible's describing here. It's not that God is enticing us even though we would already have the desire to come to Jesus. No, the word here for draw means to drag or to haul like a sack of potatoes. It describes Peter dragging the net full of fish in John 21. It describes Paul and Silas being dragged into the marketplace at Philippi. It is something that God must do. It is not something that we are able in ourselves. You know, there is a story of R.C. Sproul debating another theologian. And the theologian thought he had caught R.C. Sproul when Sproul was making the point that I'm making. And he said, you know, there's an obscure Greek classical text in which this verb is used to draw water out of a well. And you don't drag or compel water to come out of a well, do you? And R.C. said, you know, I'd never heard of that text before. And I will admit, you don't compel water to come out of a well. But I don't know if I've ever seen someone go to the top of a well and say, Here, water, 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 water. Come out, water. Come on up. You can do it, water. Come on. The principle's the same. It takes the action of God to bring us to the Savior. It's an effectual dragging, drawing. Now, you may ask me, how can I know if the Father is drawing me? And you could spend a whole lot of time worrying about that. But the answer is the same as before. Come to Jesus. If you want to know if the Father is drawing you, come to Jesus. Because no one can come to Jesus except the Father draw him. And if you come to Jesus, what does that mean? The Father has drawn you. So why are you wasting your time wondering if you're drawn when you can know if you're drawn by coming to Jesus? If you're here this morning and not sure about Jesus, not sure what you believe, not sure you want to come to Jesus, then you have great hope. Pray that the Father would draw you to Jesus. Pray that he would strip away all of your objections, all of your fears, all of your doubts and bring you to Jesus. Because he can do that. 
God is stronger than your sins. Stronger than your guilt. Stronger than your doubts and your fears. Go to Him. Claim His promise. He will not cast you out. This passage in John 6 is indeed one of the most profound in the Bible. It contains deep theology that stretches our thinking. But it also contains great and simple promises. It reminds you that the way to eternal life is simply believing in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus today, you will be saved. You will have eternal life. That is God's final word on the matter. That is the place to start. That is where your hope is found. And when you believe, you know you are secure because God tells you that He is behind you believing. It doesn't depend on your faithfulness, but His. It doesn't depend on your wisdom, but His. All you must do is look on the sun and believe. Let's pray.